Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. And welcome to Lost in Science for another week where we talk about science. We talk and stuff. about stuff. That's right. This week... I'm going to be talking a little bit about birds and a little bit about the formation that they make in the sky and how they, the flying V, you yeah, know yeah, that? Yeah. 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 Just how do they do that? How do they do that and how do they pick a leader? And why do they do it? And why do they do it? And why do they do it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be asking those sorts of questions. What have you... I'm sure it's for my personal amusement, no? Always. Always. <laughs> <laughs> what what have you got in store for us today? Um, so I'm going to be talking about how we taste things. Oh. Mm, yeah. There's, okay. Yeah. Taste buds? Taste buds, how okay. we taste things, how we perceive our tastes. Ah. Yeah. Is there a new taste? Yeah. So there's a new study to kind of shake the way we think really? about things. Yeah. Ah. Mm. And um, we are also going to be talking a little bit about the climate change conference that's happening in Paris at the moment, but on a local scale, isn't it? Like we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, some citizen science projects and how maybe people around Australia can get involved in some climate science. Yeah, it'd be good. It'd be good. So stay tuned. have you ever looked up into the dawn sky and seen a flock of ducks or birds taking flight? Yes, it's, it's lovely. It is lovely. Just it's beautiful. pretty magical, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And normally they're in a V, right? Yeah. Yeah, a flying V or maybe even an inverted V, like an arrowhead flying towards Somewhere. some an apple, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, when I look at birds flying, I'm asking a lot of questions. Why are they flying like that? How do they know to fly like that? Who's taking the lead? Is it always, is you it think always a lot the same more bird? Than I do. <laughs> You're the field ecologist. <laughs> I, I look at these birds and I go, "Ooh, pretty." You say, "I and wish, I wish they were bats." <laughs> but you know, why are they flying in a V and not in like a W or a J or a K? Well, there are two well-supported and complementary explanations for why birds fly in this formation. Um, one, as you can probably guess, is to conserve energy by taking advantage of what's called an upwash or vortex field, which is created at the wingtips of the birds in front of them. And the other theory is to help with orientation and communication between so the birds. Explain this vortex thing more. Yeah, yeah. So Let's talk about conserving energy. Yeah. So, Manisha, imagine you're a bird. Yes. Got it. Got it. When you flap your wings, a rotating – yep, you, you can do this at home just like <laughs> Manisha's doing in the studio. You can – you flap your wings and a sort of rotating vortex of air 
rolls off each of the tips of your wings. Mm. And they're sort of making these sort of spirally vortexes at the edges of your wings. Now, these spiraling vortexes push air down immediately mm-hmm. underneath the wing, but they also end up pushing air to the sides of the wings because air that goes down has to come up. Mm-hmm. So the air at the sides of the wings are pushing up. And that means if another bird puts its wing in that uh, upward oh. draft, then it is getting a little bit of the lift. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, getting a bit of free lift, meaning the bird can save energy by mooching off the up- upward air mm. um, created by you and your wings. Yeah. Wow. Which sort of makes sense in theory. And I'm sure there are a lot of physicists out there who are like, yeah. Oh, of course. Upward Drafts, of course, yes. Of course, (laughs) indubitably. (laughs) But no one had ever taken any data from birds to see if they were actually saving energy, like any metabolic rates or anything like that. Um, This was until an ornithologist named Henry Wymerskirch. Very well done. Henry Wymerskirch fitted pelicans with heart rate monitors. This was back in 2001, which is amazing. So they're wearing like little Fitbits? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he put put Fitbits on pelicans and found that the birds at the back of the V had slower heart rates than the birds in the front of the V. So they flap less often. So this confirms that the birds do do benefit from... Um, being in a V, but not exactly how they achieve these results. And that, Manisha, is where the endangered northern bald ibis comes into it. Of course it is. <laughs> exactly Isn't it always? Isn't well it always? <laughs> now, a researcher named Stephen Portugal and his team of scientists. Of course. They also got on the pelican with a, with a Fitbit, but with the um, endangered northern bald ibis. So they strapped devices to a flock of ibises who were making their maiden voyage to central Europe. So these ibises are really endangered. So the scientists sort of piggybacked on the back of a conservation project that was trying to get these ibises back into their native habitat. And so they – have you ever seen the film Fly Away Home – no. Yeah, it well, it's an old film from the nineties. It okay, has Anna maybe. Paquin and Jeff Daniels in it, and in that film, yep. just like um, Stephen Portugal and his team did, they jumped in a microplane, like one of those tiny planes yep. that do- doesn't have like big rotors and stuff like that. Yep. And they led the birds like a big mama <gasps> oh. bird. They led them across Europe, and then so the birds would stop when they stopped, where and the birds are- would take flight when they took flight. Cool. Where yeah. are the where were the ibises moving from? That's a good question. I think somewhere around Asia. Okay. Yes. So what they found was the birds fly exactly how our physicist friends would have predicted them to fly. They are located in the exact positions that is most beneficial for them to conserve energy. Was the mama bird always in front? Well, the mama bird being the microplane was always in front. Yes, yes. Hmm. Mm. Some ibises preferred to be on the right of the V, some ibises preferred to be on the left, some preferred the centre, others on the edge, but on whole... The birds swapped around quite a lot and they would change positions so everyone would have a have a turn, a turn yeah, sort right. of being in the front, being more in the front of the V or being more in the back of the V. Uh, but 
being in a flying V isn't just about staying in the right place. It's also about flapping at the right time. So as each bird flaps its wings, um, the trail of sort of upward air left by the wingtips also moves up and down. So um, the birds need to be able to sense what the birds in front of them are doing exactly and keep their own wings within within the right sort of distance of the birds in front of them. They sort of trace the same path of air that the birds in front of them trace. So if you think about if you're walking in the snow... Oh yeah, right. And someone in front of you it has made a path. Yeah, right. Um, and you, you, it's it's a lot easier for you to step on their steps because they've already compacted the snow, so it's less energy for yeah, you. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's like what these birds are doing, cool. but in the air. I wonder how they communicate that they need to switch. Like the front guys go, "Cape, getting tired. Somebody yeah. take over, please." Yeah. Well, maybe it's like the Tour de France where they have little um headsets. Oh, maybe. They do have Fitbits, so I wouldn't pass it. They're very technologically advanced, these guys. Oh, the Ibis. But what what about other birds that don't fly for as long? So take, for example, the humble pigeon. They don't travel great distances, but they still fly in a flock. How do they choose who they fly, like who they follow? Do they have a... Jetpack? No. <laughs> but wait, do they do pigeons fly in formation or do they just fly in like a cloud? They sort of fly in a cloud, but they do definitely have a leader. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe it's like the m- most wise pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what people thought. Maybe it was the most wise pigeon. But someone's like gone 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 wise. and done this. And and in what what probably takes the cake for the cutest ornithological experiment. Um these scientists from Oxford took four flocks of pigeons and put tiny little backpacks on them. Little GPS backpacks? Tiny little GPS backpacks Aww. on them um, and sent them sent them away and sent them flying around. Um, what they found out was some birds are naturally faster um, and consistently get to the front and it's those guys that become the leaders. So, yeah, the researchers found that when the birds flew a route on their own for the first time that – the leaders were no better than the followers in forging a direct route home to their roost. But when the birds were tested individually after they had flown the route um, as part of their flock, then the leaders were found to have learned better routes home than the followers. So I guess that's, that's sort of like, you know, when you're driving in the car and if you're the driver, then you're watching and navigating yeah. and you know the route that you take better than the passenger who yeah, just exactly. Who's sits just there, there and, and doesn't probably takes a nap yeah probably takes a nap <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a better navigator to start with it just means you've got more practice yeah right so yeah it, it gives a bit of insight into why pigeons have these consistent leadership hierarchies it's just that some of them are faster than another than others but i guess we can say Maybe it's true, birds of a feather flock together.
we all know about our five tastes. We can taste sweet, salty, savory, bitter, and sour things. Well, some of us learned that there's different regions of your tongues that could, uh, where the recept- receptors are grouped and they mm. detect these certain flavors. But we also know that that's a little bit wrong and that your receptors are actually just scattered. Scattered around. Yeah, so it's not that you have sections or regions of your tongue that taste different flavors, but your receptors are all over your tongue and they send signals to your yeah. brain. But there may actually be some work that is suggesting that this isn't actually true. So it's not necessarily that your receptors send a flavor signal to your brain, just your receptors are activated and then your brain makes sense of the signals. Does that make sense? Oh. Yeah. Okay, so anyways, there's a study out of the Zucker Lab at Columbia University um, in the U.S., and they challenged the idea of taste receptors sending our brain messages about the flavor. In their recent study, they suggest that even though the receptors send a chemical signal, it's actually the brain that does all the thinking, the brain that does all the work. So it's not like our taste buds are specially set up for salty, sweet, or bitter. It's yeah. just that they are sending a signal and then we're interpreting it exactly. as Exactly, yeah. So, it's, so we don't necessarily have like flavors, flavor receptors on our tongues we and just, the the difference between flavors and tastes is there a difference between no i think i think okay. that yeah they were used interchangeably in the right, article right, right. so okay hmm. yeah the the lab actually identified that there's different parts of your brain that are activated when you taste something so there's actually a sweet region in your brain or a sour region in your brain a bitter region <laughs> i imagine the bitter region would be very, very, very sort of grumpy. Grumpy. <laughs> I kind of imagined Inside Out characters tasting yes. all of, yeah. So, anyways, the your brain gets these chemical messages from the taste receptors, and then it, the chemical message goes to these different sections of your brain. It may have nothing to do with your tongue entirely. Once they identified these regions, they actually set out to activate it or deactivate the regions and kind of convince you or in their case, mice, that they're tasting something that they're not tasting. So activate or deactivate regions in the brain. Yeah. And convince them that they're tasting something Different. that they aren't. Yeah. Wow. So um, they're trying to see if you could maybe taste bitter when you're having something or without having something bitter. Or maybe you're tasting something bitter or something that is mm. bitter, but you you find it to be sweet. So just kind of changing the way that you perceive your taste Um, that would be terrifying it'd be interesting Mm. (laughs) so they conducted their trial on mice and once they identified the regions responsible for the taste they silenced the neurons and observed the response in the mice and at first they were just relying on observational traits so they would give uh, the mice plain water activate the sweet sensor and see how the the mice responded and they were they were giving very happy cues like they were licking it they were very um joyed (laughs) to drink this water is that a scientific term Uh, yes yes it is and um with uh they did the same with the bitter stuff and they Uh apparently like with plain water the mice were avoiding the water and like grimacing if if mice can grimace And what were they doing with the sour? They were like puckering up their little mice lips. <laughs> and they just they just couldn't handle it. Looking like they ate a lemon. <laughs> now I'm uh, imagining ratatouille like trying. <laughs> oh dear. Anyways, they wanted to make sure that the observations weren't just them being like, oh, I'm sure that the rats and the mice, sorry, not rats, mice, were um, completely 
in love with the sweet water or yeah. whatever. So yeah, the researchers went ahead and they trained the, the mice to uh, give a novel behavioral response. So once they had something sweet, they trained the mice to respond individually to that versus if they had something bitter. So there was a lot of mice training. And then they did this whole experiment all over again, gave the mice plain water, activated the sweet sensor, and they they did the novel behavioral response as if it's as if they had something sweet and Whoa. the same thing with the bitter. So they found that the response to the true stimuli wasn't any different to the fake stimuli. <laughs> to them just activating, activating the, 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 the sweet or the bitter part of their yeah. brain. What was the thing that the mouse did that uh, made it? They didn't say in either. Oh, so I okay. read a couple articles and I read the article, like the paper that came out. It came out in Nature. And it just had a novel behavioral a response. A novel behavior. I wonder what it was. Like, maybe like a thumbs up or a thumbs down. <laughs> they like just did backflips or something like that <laughs> if they really liked it. So this this is actually a pretty interesting discovery because it shows that we don't uh, that we don't have varying responses to our taste like we do with other senses. Like we have different responses to olfaction cues and to hearing. So we can. Like, we can like things more or less if we can like the taste of things more or less. Like, we can train ourselves. But the actual cue and what we are sensing is in our brains. It's all hardwired. Alternatively, like, our other senses, it has a lot to do with our experience and with our learning. Um, You can think about, like, how you can have really different tastes in music from someone or even just how some scents are really pleasing to some people and really displeasing to other people mm. so it's really closely related to just your experiences and how you yeah how you've learned to appreciate those things Absolutely. those senses the thing that i found curious about all of this was it, they're essentially mapping the brain for these taste receptors so like taste regions in your brain and if you think about something like olfaction that has such a strong cute like strong relationship with your memory like you know what i mean like you can smell something mm. and it elicits like such a strong memory such I, a strong memory right the, the strongest memory the strongest but i'm just thinking how about if we can map our like olfaction cues on in our brain as well and like then kind of be able to tell when we have a good memory from some scent or a bad memory from some, some scent or something like that so that could be something cool that would be amazing and also future research yeah future research and then so i got really interested in looking into these things yeah and apparently olfaction a degradation of olfaction performance is related to is like an early sign of alzheimer's and parkinson's ah. yeah the the studies that looked at the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's weren't really definitive. It was just more, they hadn't proven it. There's just like a lot of, mm. in a lot of cases, it tends to happen. But it could be cool because maybe we can modify those regions and help with these diseases. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Mm. Just follow your nose, I guess. Manisha, it's a pretty landmark time. You know, the heads of state and representatives of 196 countries 
have been in Paris at the United Nations Conference on Climate Change to take action against the effects of climate change. Uh, now there's every chance that it's going. the conference might end with a slightly disappointing feeling. Yeah. So instead of talking about that today, I thought maybe we could talk about the different ways that climate scientists and researchers are looking to the general public to help with scientific results. Yeah, um, citizen data, science. Citizen science, yeah, um, which ultimately is going to help research to be more robust and in the long run will mean people will have a more scientifically valid information. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good because it's little ways that we can all help out. That's right, hmm. yeah. So you've got a citizen science project worth talking about? Yes, yes I do. I actually have one that's based in in Melbourne and it was a project that was done between um, seven of our local council councils in Melbourne East um, along with the University of Melbourne, ARCU, which is the Australian Research Unit for Urban Ecology, which is the, or sorry, the Australian Research Centre for Urban Ecology, which is the research unit that I work with and the Department of Research Management and Geography, also at Uni Melbourne. So the seven councils, they all came together and they wanted some sort of like a action framework against climate change because the communities in those areas were really concerned. So this all came out of people raising the, uh, raising the concern and then the councils actually acting on it. And so all of these people came together and they developed this framework to monitor the health of the ecosystem. And as we're talking about climate change, one of the one of the things that trickles down to is the fact that our ecosystems are changing. Yeah. And so a lot of our biodiversity is being at lost risk. or at risk, yeah, yeah, threatened. Things are changing, but we don't really know how the changes are going or if the change is a good change or a bad change. So this framework really sets up this long-term monitoring plan to allow us to monitor four biodiversity indicators, uh, vegetation extent, vegetation condition, mm. phenology, and local bird communities. Um, so sorry, the seven councils, they're called EGA, or the Eastern Alliance for Greenhouse Action. And they paired up with BirdLife Australia, and they set up these, uh, or well, BirdLife has these apps on your phone where you can put in which birds you've seen. Oh, and, and yeah. And you can sort of like geotag the birds to a place and a yeah, time, so take you, a picture of them, upload it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they already have this massive database. But then with these seven councils, they set up these trails in the, in the councils where you could go on these self-guided tours and they have plaques with information and it tells you exactly what to do. And you can go out, identify some birds and, and log it into the into the system yeah. and it's it's other things too like you can log in the trees that are in the area and things like that i'm not i don't know the specifics but it's an interesting program because you can go out in your own neighborhood and mm. log some birds and it's really intended for anybody they have photos of the birds that they're looking for and the populations that they want to count so it, you don't really even have to be an expert birder to do it you can just go along these yeah. trails you have your smartphone with you logging all these birds, and it goes into this massive database that BirdLife has been organizing for almost 20 years. So that information is then going to be used by the councils? Yeah, so it's going to be used by the councils, and um, I'm sure they'll uh, they'll send, send it out to some science as well because yeah. they're, they'll be able to show like how communities are changing, how 
some populations may be coming into certain areas and some populations mm. may be leaving. Maybe um, we're, we're switching the range of spe- um, certain species. Maybe we're getting more species in the city or maybe we're getting less. You never really know what's going on and each species will respond in its own way. So it'll be an interesting pro- project and it's, it's a cool way to see the trend. That sounds really cool. Well, I wanted to talk about a citizen science project that's sort of similar, but instead of looking at how our animal communities are adapting to climate change. It's looking at how the human population Mm. is adapting to climate change. So this citizen science research, it's actually new from CSIRO. So they're aiming to document what people are sort of informally doing right now in response to a changing climate. So what people are doing like in their own homes. Yeah, what yeah, they're doing right. in their own homes, maybe on their farms, maybe how they might be like saving water or changing their behaviours. Yeah, or changing their behaviours to to stop the effects of extreme yeah. weather and oh, that yeah, right. that sort of thing. Yeah. And so yeah, so whether whether it be a response in in a change in rainfall or an increase in temperature or extreme weather events. So it's only specifically to New South Wales at the moment, but um the residents of New South Wales, if you do live there, then you should jump online and have a look at the csiro.mysocialpinpoint.com and have a look at this map. You can you can pinpoint exactly where you are and then and then you can say, you know, whether you've changed your transportation method, whether you might have changed your bushfire readiness, um, water management in your home um, or garden modifications, farming practices. You can take photos of the things that you've changed and upload them. You can add sort of like a general description as to what you've done. This would be a great place to get ideas of things and to do. And a great place to get to ideas do, yeah. as well, totally. See what other people are doing, see what yeah. your neighbours are doing. That's see, cool. see what your neighbours are doing, see what different people, I mean, from a scientific point of view, it's a great, it's a great sort of data, just interesting to look at a whole map and see, you know, the, oh, these guys in the northeast are doing um, more sort of, of getting, thing. yeah, getting getting ready for fires. But these guys down here are doing um, more water related. Yeah, right. These people um, here behaviors are, and mm. yeah. So that's that's really interesting cool. as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it should be interesting to see if they extend it all the way out to the rest of Australia, or maybe maybe they're just sort of getting the information, getting and sort of working it out at the moment. Yeah. Cool. Nice one. Yeah. So those are some really interesting projects and it would be really cool to get on board with any of those. Absolutely. Do you know the the website? Yeah, for mine, um, I'm pretty sure you can just go onto the BirdLife uh, website and they've got information on their uh, bird data and their Atlas program. So even if you're not in one of those seven councils I mentioned, you can definitely jump on board to one of the um, other community involvement things that BirdLife does. So just check it out. Absolutely. And the CSIRO Citizen Science Research is at siro.mysocialpinpoint.com um but we'll put the links up on our website yeah it'd be great get on board That's all the science we have for you this week. 
Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to contact us, and that would be great, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com, find us on Facebook, or maybe try some pigeon mail, also known as Twitter. Or you can download our podcast on the web. And join us next week when Stu, Chris, Manisha and Claire get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.